Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We are dedicated to furthering understanding of the First World War and have over 60 branches worldwide. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 20th of April, 2020, and this is episode 157. On this week's podcast, I talked to Damien Burke, archivist at the Irish Jesuit Archives in Dublin, about his research into the responses of Irish Jesuits to the end of the Great War. I spoke to Damien from his office in Dublin. Hi Damien, welcome to the podcast. Could you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Hi, um, so my name is Damien Burke and I'm uh, an archivist with the Society of Jesus. I initially trained as a teacher, but after visiting the archives for the first time in 2005, I decided to give up that career and of teaching IT and go into archives. And my interest in the First World War is from working with the Jesuits in 2012. We decided to set up a committee to commemorate a number of Jesuit events, and one of them was tasked to me to go and find out about the chaplains from the Jesuits who served in the First World War. I know this might sound a really obvious question, but could you start by telling us who the Jesuits are? So the Society of Jesus, or more commonly known as the Jesuits, are a religious order of men in the Catholic Church, um, they were founded in 1540 by Ignatius of Loyola and a group of close companions in Rome. And I suppose they, at the time they were looked upon as pioneers of the Counter-Reformation. But over the years, their work has got varied into missionary work, education, social justice, spirituality, the environment, working for the poor, religious formation. And today, this work in over about 100 countries, and there's about 16,000 of them, men, laymen, uh, as I am ordained priests and brothers uh, who are celibate of the Catholic Church and as a group they're known to be I suppose known for their intellectual rigour of education is key to all their aspects of what they do. And the archives based in Dublin is a repository for the papers, private papers of Jesuits obviously from Ireland who serve the Jesuits over time. That's correct so the, the archives here gives you an indication of Jesuit life in Ireland from about 15 60 onwards, and also Irish Jesuits who went abroad on mission to places like Zambia and Australia and Hong Kong, and any Irish uh, Jesuits who went abroad and came back to Ireland. So the Jesuits are well known for in their constitutions when they're set up about the necessity to write and put information down on paper, which as an archivist is fantastic because we've got loads of copies of articles and letters that they write back because they're superiors always ask them to tell them about the work that's going on. So they're, they're constantly writing, which is a great a source for historians and researchers. And obviously your archive contains the uh, private papers of a number of chaplains who served in the Great War, and th- three of which we're going to talk about today. Could you start by introducing the three men that um, you selected, describing their backgrounds, experience, experience during the Great War, and where they were at the armistice in November 1918? Okay, so I'll give you an indication of the three men's backgrounds first. The three men, uh, the first man was Frank Brown. Uh, he was born in Cork in 1880. He is most famous today for being on the Titanic and being able to get off the Titanic at Queenstown Cove and taking photographs of the Titanic. And this was previous to his war experience. So even he was known to be the photographer who took the photographs of the Titanic. Uh, he was ordained priest in 1915. And by 1916, 
He's in France as chaplain to Irish Guards. He comes from a middle upper class background in Cork. The second chaplain I'm going to talk about will be John Delaney, uh, who's unusual because he's from a working class Dublin background. He doesn't go to a Jesuit school. He is takes an entrance exam at 15 to go to a Jesuit um, boarding school in Limerick. And he does so well in that that the Jesuits take him on board, but he doesn't enter for another five years. Um, and then the third Jesuit I'm talking about today is Henry Gill. And he's born in Dublin to a wealthy family um, businessman. His, his father is a businessman, Henry Gill. They run a publishing firm and a printing firm. He goes to Jesuit schools. And then before the war, he teaches in Jesuit schools. But also he's got a sideline in uh, seismology, which is the study of earthquakes, which makes him end up in Cambridge studying there in the Cavendish laboratories before the war. So his background is science. Um, Delaney is more of a teacher and Brown is a photographer. Their experiences of war, well, uh, like a lot of Jesuit chaplains, these three men volunteer. Others, chaplains, have been volunteered as in been told to go, but these three Jesuits volunteer. For Brown and Delaney, they're quite young into their priesthood. These men are only 33, 34, and this is their first experience of being a priest. Um, they serve on the front line with the soldier, soldiers. They give the sacraments. They say mass. They bury. They work as stretcher buries, attendants. Um, they write to relatives of those who are killed. And one of the most important things that the three of them do is keep up morale. Uh, Brown gets injured quite early when he serves the Irish Guards as goes to the front in 1916. He... So his wound stripes are sewn on the forearm of his uniform. He takes up the duty then later with the Dublin Fusiliers, and he's uh, present when the German Spring Offensive happens uh, later. Delaney uh, describes the country as one great plane of desolation. He is also with the British Expeditionary Forces. Um, he talks about smashed in tanks, broken down wagons later in the war in 1917. He also talks about the loss of the dead not being buried and wonders how German gas shells fell near him that hadn't killed him. He witnesses a lot of suffering and his letters back to the archives here comment that the dreadful state of affairs um, and quote that in the height of civil civilization, brains can be utilized for destruction of humankind. Gill, his experience of war, well, he's there for four and a half years. He's there from the very, very start and he is at the Battle of the Somme he is in the second and third battles of Ypres, the Battle of Messines, the German offensive in March 1918. He enlists in the 14th of November 1914 and is at the front a month later. He wishes to be with the Irish troops um, and he, I suppose, counters a lot of people's opinions that the chaplains were at the trenches. He wanted to be at the trenches, but he thought that the best work was done out of the trenches when they were alive and well, not when they were injured. So his chief tasks were travelling around the billets where the soldiers were housed during the time away from the front, hearing confessions. He also was very good at finding gramophones to entertain the soldiers, um, getting mouth organs, and he even borrows a cinematograph from Dublin to show filaments that he'd hired from Pathé in Paris. He organises boxing matches, football matches, card games. So he's obviously thinking also of the spiritual direction of men. He's thinking of the day-to-day, -day, what they're doing. And Jesuit chaplains were there mainly because of a huge number of the schools that they ran in Ireland had gone when they left school had enlisted. There's also a desire to serve, to be with their men um, for the Catholic faith, a sense of duty. There's also a Jesuit tradition of serving in war. So Irish Jesuits have served in the Crimea and the Boer War. And 
the kind of the fourth thing really is that Jesuit chaplains would kind of administer the sacraments. Um, Catholicism at the time through through Irish soldiers was quite high, so the fear of dying without the last rites or absolution or confession. You see that in the letters that are sent by chaplains back to the parents, and mainly the mother of men who have died, to say that. And it may it might not have been true, but they always quote in their letters back that their son, A, died quickly, and B, had received the sacraments before death. And this would be consoling to a mother back in Dublin or Cork or Belfast. That, that child has been killed in the front, that the sacraments would be given to them. And their experience of a war differ mainly because they're in, they're in different areas. So the three chaplains that Brown, Delaney and Gill don't often see each other. So there isn't one kind of Jesuit chaplaincy where they all go to casualty claim stations, they're all at the front, they're all, all behind lines. They're all over the place doing different things and they come across each other sometimes, but they're all, it's an individual experience of the First World War that has an effect on them later regarding how this experience plays out for the rest of their lives. At Armistice, so once the once the war is over, we're lucky that both Brown and Gill tell us about what's happening in November 1918. Gill at the time was on leave and it just so happens that he was on pilgrimage to the birthplace of Joan of Arc and I quote that he says, in the meantime I'd made arrangements for a trip of the greatest possible interest to myself. I was being motored to Chamo to get the train to Paris and on the way I was to pay a visit to Marie, the birthplace of Joan of Arc. I look forward to this visit with great pleasure. I'd set out from Rouen where the saint was put to death to begin my work at the front in 1914 and now I after almost four years, I was to visit her birthplace and a basilica and have the opportunity to make a pilgrimage to thank her for her protection during the war. Brown is in deep in Armistice Day and he gives a, a good account, which I'll quote, Isn't it grand to think the end has come and come so well for our side? Please God it will come for us at home soon and equally well. Here all is excitement and rejoicing. It happened to be in the fateful 11 o'clock Monday last. I was on the Ordnorek side, which is a great... 11 o'clock was signalled by every engine furiously blowing its whistle. Then nearly all of them proceeded to career up and down the hacks, still whistling. On several of them, men sat astride the boilers, waving flats and ringing bells. This lasted for 20 minutes. The Belgian emigres organised a march through the town with their military band and all the soldiers and officers present. The bugles were blowing as they entered the main street, which was crowded with rejoicing people. Suddenly, the bugles stopped and the band struck up the Marseillaise. For a moment, there was a kind of silence. Then with a roar, the whole crowd of people took it up. Women appeared at every window, waving flags and singing. Children shouted and sang and wriggled through the crowd. It was one of the most inspiring, spontaneous demonstrations it has ever been my fortune to witness. Unfortunately, Delaney at the time was laid up with trench fever, um, having been exposed to it. Um, I think it's Fontainebleau's uh, uh, a battle there, and he celebrated it from a hospital. Um, and that wasn't when the armistice ended. That's the kind of the end of their war for in the fighting aspect of it. But all three would s- serve later. Once the armistice is called, what happens to them? So for all three, they all stay on in the army for a number of months. So it didn't. So for Brown, it didn't mark the end of his military career. He is in January 1919. He goes with um, the troops to go into Germany, and he is stationed in Cologne um, for a number of months. And he continues for until the end of 1919 to be in the Irish Guards. And he goes to Warley Barracks in England and he stays there. 
Brown particularly loves the military life. And from talking to people who knew him subsequently, he even takes on the speech of a military man. So he would say that when he, he saw a group of uh, nuns, he would call them a battalion of nuns. And he stays on until early 1920. Delaney was demobilized in June 1919. Um, so he stays on as well. And then sent back to Ireland. Because of the war, he didn't get to finish his Jesuit training. Although he's ordained, when the Jesuits ordained a priest, they also have to do a year after it of spiritual study. So that's before any work is done, but because the war happened, that was postponed. So once he comes back to Ireland, he straight away has to go back into study uh, for another year before he can be, I suppose, working again. And Gill is until the end of 1918 is discharged but I think straight away with Gill the Irish Jesuits realised that the traumatic effect of the war uh, has an effect on him because they give him duties uh, such as teaching um, in, in Belgrade College however he was used to doing high level research in laboratories and they realised then the teaching his nerves and we would probably call it today post-traumatic stress and although Gilson's a researcher for the rest of his life, responding to the aftermath of war, he is deaf of circulation as a teacher straight away. The, the four and a half he's involved in the war does seem to have a detrimental effect on him. So, so where were they by 1920? So by 1920, Brown is now teaching at Belvedere College and he has to manage the incidents that happened in Ireland because the War of Independence has started in 1919 and he also has friends with people like Lord French and Alexander of Tunis so he has to kind of be able to represent school and the thoughts of Jesuits regarding the change in landscape in Ireland but also maintain his friendships and he his allegiance let's say to this the chaplaincy that work that he'd done because he even by the Second World War, wanted to enlist as a chaplain. And so there's a fine line that he has to, has to kind of walk because he represents, let's say, the interests of the school and most famously their past pupil, Kevin Barry, who was executed in 1920. And he even goes to Lord French to say to Lord French, who was up in the Phoenix Park at the time, um, could you commute to service? Uh, having known Lord French through the First World War, um, could you commute to service of the past pupil of the school who was 18 years of age? Gill at the time, the judges realised that Gill can teach for a certain period, but it doesn't work out. He They realised that his nerves are not up to the teaching career that has been um, performed to him. So they ask him and he accepts that he would just continue his scientific research. So he does everything from earthquake research to the interests of photography to road lamps so he continues his scientific research and in 1920 Delaney is sent as a missionary and becomes a headmaster in Ceylon or we would be called today Sri Lanka and works there for about 13 years as a headmaster having wanted to go abroad and to do missionary work and the Jesuits say that well that's fine. Um, I think all three Jesuits after the war are able to say to the their superiors that this is something that we'd like to do because the experience of the war has given them a kind of not not a kind of free ticket, but has given them an opportunity to be able to say, listen, we've gone through this, and now we would like to focus on our priestly career. 
Um, what, how, do they, how do they view their service in the war? I suppose partly just as individuals, but also in the context of a changing Ireland um, with the War of Independence and the Civil War that followed that. Well, all three seem to be quite proud of the fact that they served as chaplains um, to the British Army in the First World War. All three would have kind of also said that we were serving um, Irish men um, fighting in the First World War. But I think from the papers and from the general correspondence at the time, all three would not highlight that in outside of the society. It was obviously changing landscape on Ireland and all three kind of decided that this was something to be um, not ignored, but they could talk about it among their Jesuit confreres, priests and brothers, but they couldn't promote what they had done. So straight away, they come back to Ireland expecting that their service for the last three, four years will be highlighted and awarded. And straight away, they, I think they got the impression that no, it wasn't. This was something that shouldn't be promoted. Um, it can be promoted within their schools, perhaps, because so many of their past people served. And for a number of years in Ireland, it, it, this duality happened where there was huge crowds on um, the 11th of November for a number of years in Dublin and the sale of the poppy was quite popular in Ireland as well as Irish nationalism happening. So it wasn't a straightforward shift. But I think the, the fact that War of Independence and Civil War happened so quickly after the First World War, <clears throat> there was a realisation from all three that this is something that we have to internalised instead of making out there. But like that, we know that um, Brown was wanting to uh, volunteer in 1939 to serve as a chaplain in the Second World War, but he is he's too old, he's 59, 60. But Irish Jesuits did serve as chaplains in the Second World War in the British Army as well. So what, hap what happens to them for the rest of their lives? So Brown, after teaching in Belvedere, uh, for a number of years, goes to across the road to a Jesuit church and becomes a superior of a place called St. Francis Xavier Church. However, by 1923-24, it indicates that his health has broken down as a result of fracturing his jaw as a chaplain in the First World War and the gassing that he um, endured. And also, the fracturing of the jaw has meant that he has a constant dribble for the rest of his life. So in 1923-24, the Jesuit superiors in the and Aaron decide that he needs a break uh, as a result of his war wounds. And you can see that this is five years later that this has affected him. So they send him to Australia for a year uh, to recuperate. Um, and then when he comes back from um, Australia, he's given a task to be on the mission staff to go around Ireland and giving missions. And there he's able to pursue his um, pursuit of photography. And over the course of the rest of his life, uh, he takes about 40,000 uh, photographs and negatives which have survived and they're an indication of Irish life. And he also takes photographs of Australia and he stops off in Ceylon. Of the light, and he is regarded as one of Ireland's foremost photographers. Um, Gill continues with his research on topics of philosophy, science and spirituality. He remains in touch with his former men that he served with and he's referred to as Padre. He, in the Second World War, he meets his family every week to go through maps and to track the progress of the war. One army officer wrote after his death to say that he seemed like a lost soul whenever you met him. Um, he was always there when he wanted and afraid of no man, but his time, he definitely had his time as a chaplain that affects him deeply. And Delaney returned after about 13 years in 1932 in Ceylon and mainly because of his health has broken down. 
this was due to the fact of a trench fever in the First World War, but also the demanding climate in Ceylon. He contracted malaria and he was obliged to leave us and return to Ireland and for the, for the remainder of his life worked in St. Francis Xavier Church in Garden Street. And where can people learn more about these individuals? Well, from the period from 2014 to 2018, there's obviously an upsurge in publications in the First World War. So the fruition of the research I did was in 2014, I edited a collection of um, articles and essays on Jesuit chaplains in the First World War called Irish Jesuit Chaplains in the First World War. And then subsequently, there's been a number of books on Frank Brown, John Delaney and Willie Doyle. And Willie Doyle has had a children's book a graphic, an award-winning graphic novel and a number of other books and a TV documentary on Doyle who died in 1917. So there's loads of publications out there that you can find out what happened to the Jesuit chaplains in the First World War. And are people able to visit the um, Jesuit archives in Dublin? They are. The archives, it is a private archives, but people can do research here and we're trying to get our catalogue up online and you'll find us at jesuitarchives.ie and um, we try to facilitate research and projects and as much as possible. Damien, thank you very much for your time. No problem, thank you. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Butterworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales, conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth, performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time. <laughs>